You are listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. With Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Welcome to episode 31 of It Sounds Like Science. Elon Musk's done it again, Simon. I know. Should we deal with the uh, the Elon font in the room? <laughs> I, I've been preparing that all week. <laughs> oh, if I'd known, I'd have brought the drum kit in. Give you a little tish on the cymbal. <laughs> yeah, unbelievably. And, and what I was more upset is that people... Well, I was upset. People seemed quite upset with him. That he just launched his car into space. And everyone... I thought everyone had you know be over the moon there was so much hate in the newspapers for him it was unbelievable in the UK I I saw um, some an interview with one of his senior staff who said that actually they'd they'd sort of said does anyone want to launch anything and they didn't have any takers so rather than launch a mass dummy they thought they'd have some fun with it so I don't think that there was I don't think it was just a done deal it was going to be frivolous from the outset but it was very entertaining yeah I was kind of I just thought it was peculiar all these people saying oh it's just frivolous and I just I was like, well, you have to launch something, and you don't want to launch a decent satellite in case it blows up. And it's actually, when you think about it, because the car's mass is actually wasn't all uniform and it would slightly be off, it was actually quite a good thing to launch because, you know, putting it in there, trying to get it out, okay, it was quite frivolous. Now you've got these pictures of a car flying through space. But um, I thought, you know, beyond that, the, the two boosters at the side coming down in unison I couldn't even believe that I thought oh they'll, they'll come down one I at a time know. I was just looking at it it was like if they'd put the music from 2001 A Space Odyssey on <laughs> just said they go okay well, we've done it I it sat was just there, unbelievable I sat there grinning like an idiot for about mm. an hour afterwards and I don't know what it was I mean I'm I'm, I'm well, we've discussed how crusty and ancient I am on the podcast last week but I'm old enough to remember I, I was I was alive during the moon landings, but I was only about two. But I would I can remember on my fourth birthday, my grandfather taking me out and pointing to the moon and saying, "There's people up there." And it was Apollo fifteen, I think. And just being, you know, I, I kind of grew up wow. in this kind of feeling of, you know, isn't space exciting? And I had the poster of the of the Apollo fifteen and lunar buggy and astronaut yeah. and flag on my wall. And you know, I've seen subsequently seen Skylab and the Space Shuttle and we're discussing Bruce McCandless and all these things have been um, yeah exciting and interesting and in the case of two of the Space Shuttle flights obviously tragic Mm. but I don't think I felt that sense of this is this is a game changer this is something completely new and uh, just yeah as you say there's two there's two um, Falcon 9's coming back down, land simultaneously. Uh, the centre core wasn't uh, was mm, lost. And so I, lucky. I've, <laughs> I've just been reading that um, they failed to reignite the, the two of the motors on the way back, and they ran out of fuel basically in order to try and do that. So, as Elon Musk is quoted as saying, the fix is pretty obvious. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> it puts a bit more lighter fluid in it, I guess. Um, but. Yeah, oh, and, and the whole telecast was so slick and the fact that it was presented by four of their engineers who were all clearly made up and, it, and it's so excited about it all and yet presented themselves so professionally um, 
and yeah, oh, it just and all the all the engineers in the background cheering like it was a football stadium. And they all knew I was what was planned. And the night before, I'd shown my daughter the there was an animation which was very slick, and it showed the separation, and it showed Starman going off into space, and it had all the. And I just thought, and I said to my daughter, you know, this is what it's going to look like. She wasn't able to stay up; it was kind of past her bedtime when it eventually did launch. But I showed her the real launch the next morning, and she thought I'd re-shown her the animation <laughs> because it was so slick. It was everything had gone as they had, had, had planned, apart from as I say, the return of the central booster. Just utterly amazing. Completely utterly amazing. It was joyous. And I know that sounds stupid to say, but a lot of the time, you know, when Tim Peake went up, it was kind of, I I wouldn't say, as much as I had, it was kind of a peculiar national pride because we don't get many kind of launches in space being British. Mm. But with this, I just thought it was almost, I I just couldn't stop laughing. I just thought that, A, the genius, but just how he said, I'm going to do this, and he's just gone and done it. It's it's not arrogant, but it it borders on that in just, I'm going to do this and I will make it happen. I just, it, yeah, it was just wonderful, and I couldn't. St- I was just grinning like like a loon, just watching it. I, you know, it was like something out of a movie, as you say. That was the closest thing you could get to. And I was thinking, he, this guy's made it real. So the thing that I saw subsequently was some amateur footage taken from along the coast, um, and I'll, I'll try and find it and put it up with the with the podcast on Facebook. I keep keep forgetting to mention that that as well as on the, uh, on Twitter at oh, SL Science. We are also uh, on uh, Facebook. You can find us on Facebook, and we'll, we'll put links up to all these stories there. But there's some footage from along the coast, and uh, it showed these two um, sort of rockets coming down. Um, and the guy filming it said, "Right, you know, there'll be some, there'll be a final burn soon, and one will then the other." And it's all perfectly silent. And then just before they hit the ground, the sonic booms happen. Two simultaneous, or well, not simultaneous, but very close sonic yeah. booms. And then the rockets land and smoke, you, know, you see the sort of dust lifted up and the sound carries on for seconds afterwards <laughs> because it's still catching up with these things. And it's just, and I think actually that movie was more impressive than some of the official footage because it really gave you a sense of being there and seeing it firsthand. Well, I, well it's just unbelievable. And there is the, 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 the faint risk that in a million years the car may come back. <laughs> the earth. I was thinking more that I can see in about 500 years classic car enthusiasts yeah. sponsoring some sort of mission to find it to out there. An just, yeah, and just find a car or something like that. It'd be worth billions. Well, that's the other thing was that his intention was to test the, the third stage and to see if it would take it out to the, the orbit of Mars. Took it out to the orbit of the asteroid belt. It's mm. such a successful burn. So this this. Uh, Car and the mannequin in the in the spacesuit, and and as a as a, a real Douglas Adams fan, I was really pleased to see on the dashboard it had on the sat nav it had "Don't Panic," and apparently oh. in the glove box there is a copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Douglas Adams's family are made up, and, and his brother tweeted, "I don't know whether to laugh or cry," you know, because it is just oh, wow. such a wonderful thing. Uh, uh, yeah, so there were all there were such such uh, wonderful little touches for the. Now, he was really embracing the geek. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I think. All I these, that's what I, I thought that because I just thought it felt a victory for that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, we've done it. Yeah, I know it sounds weird. It wasn't nationals or anything like that. It was just enthusiasts. And it was like, yeah, we've finally done it and we're getting there. And as you say, to be able to get to Mars, maybe. Uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. But it, I just, it made me, I, I, I got 
as I say, frustrated. In in the papers in the UK, people were trying to compare him to a Bond villain. Well, you just kind of understand just why, because everything was so slick. Everything, well, but you, know, you, you couldn't do that in secret, I don't think. I think it's fair to yeah. say. <laughs> well, so, so the one thing that I thought was potentially um, a, a valid point was that some of my female colleagues on Twitter were, were posting pictures of the mission control room in the 60s and the mission control, well, and, and the, the, it wasn't mission control, but the, all the staff watching and just basically pointing out that it was nearly all men, if not entirely men. And for the 60s picture, that's a fair point. I, and I would like to know for, for the picture from Elon Musk, is it just that it had such an atmosphere of a football stadium that the the women engineers and uh, scientists and, and computer programmers were just watching it somewhere other where they felt, you know, <laughs> in an environment they were they were more comfortable with? Or was it just, is it still the fact that the, the gender bias is so so great in, in the industry? Mm. So I think that's the only the only thing that I could see in it that, yeah, sort of flagged a bit of concern that yeah is it just young 20 30 something year old men whooping or, or i mean here's two 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 white middle-aged blokes talking about it now <laughs> uh, do you count yourself as middle-aged You're probably not quite yet, are you? Oh, i'm getting there the doctor <laughs> said i have to start being prepared for <laughs> those sort of things i've been warned and i'll say like, i'm not that age and I'll say, oh anyway so um yes you may not be possibly but is, yeah. <laughs> i'm getting there my neck is uh, but anyway um yeah i but well i don't I, I was kind of made up it was just unbelievable i think and um yeah as you say hopefully well the next stage is going to be astronauts so hopefully some of uh, those astronauts will be a mix of all peoples going to mars i think the spacesuit actually on the car is actually one that he's planning to use yeah I so it was too, actually yeah. testing that as well so well obviously not that spacesuit yeah not gonna reuse well that. hopefully not <laughs> But, so there were, you never know with him. No. So there are two more Falcon Heavy missions scheduled this year. As far as space technology is concerned, wow. Just wow. On that space technology, actually, quickly, mm-hmm. and talking about money, actually, I will try and segue into oh, another yeah, story that caught my eye, hopefully, is that um, <laughs> SETI, I wouldn't say he's in trouble, but a search for extraterrestrial intelligence well done. is having a little bit of problem because obviously you can download this. I don't know if people are aware. It's a bit like it's probably one of the first citizen science pro- projects out there, and you could download a bit of software and it would allow you to, um, your computer, when it's in its idle phase, to, to scan basically through radio signals that have been picked up. And and the problem is so many people are now trying to mine for cryptocurrencies that they've got a problem actually re- recruiting computing power to SETI. Right. So this is actually holding back the search for extraterrestrial intelligence because everyone's out there trying to find Bitcoin. So, so you, you, can, you can mine Bitcoin by getting your computer to do what? So basically, I think it's to do with prime numbers. Right. So the reason why Bitcoin at the beginning, so each Bitcoin is based around a prime number. Mm-hmm. And obviously the first Bitcoins are quite easy to find because you found the prime of some number. But at the beginning, those numbers are quite, you know, two or mm-hmm. seven or whatever. Now it's getting to, you know, hundreds of thousands of numbers long. And so finding the primes of these are getting rarer. So people are trying to basically use their computer to find primes of extremely long numbers or find extremely long numbers that are prime numbers. And once you've found that, that is effectively what a Bitcoin is. So instead of scanning for all these radio signals, people were basically trying to get their 
computers to do complex math solutions to find very large prime numbers mm. and and in the hope that you'll get a million pounds which seems to be you know everyone's telling everyone to buy bitcoin at the moment i think that kind of ship has passed somewhat <laughs> personally oh crikey so so uh the the available computing power for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is now diminished because people are t- trying to think of their, their pockets rather than anything else yeah Unbelievably, but um, yeah, I just thought it was interesting because sorry, I've just uh, Bitcoin seems to have gone mad over here, and some of my friends are traders, and they're going droning on about it endlessly. And I just think about five years ago when you could buy a cup of coffee down Old Street, which is a very hip street part of London. It was interesting. Now bankers have got hold of it. I'm just like groaning. I was like, it's, uh, <laughs> when your parents get on Facebook, you know it's over. And I've been as soon as bankers get into something that was previously the exclusive realm of uh, hipsters and computer scientists, I think you know. I think it's dead. Basically, sorry. That isn't. Uh, by the way, I would like to point out this podcast is not giving financial advice. I would not say <laughs> no, no way is Bitcoin dead, but I, I would advise you to look elsewhere for uh, yeah. You're not giving advice. He says aliens. giving advice. <laughs> <laughs> look, if you come here looking for financial advice, I think you're in trouble. <laughs> starting point, quite frankly. Well, uh, uh, moving on to uh, I don't know how to segue into this. It's something that will make maintain life. Um, <laughs> there's a new antibiotic family have been discovered in a soil, basically in soil, in dirt. Um, and uh, I remember seeing some fact on television that there are more undiscovered species in a square metre of soil in your back garden than there are in the Amazon. You just have to look. You know, if you look at wow. every, every time you look at anything in any particular detail, you'll find new things. And um, these are um, uh, some. Research has been done this to, to look at uh, if they can find any antibiotics. And uh, as the soil is teeming with millions of different microorganisms, they think that they found uh, some potential new anti- antibiotics. So this is Dr. Sean Brady and his team at New York's Rockefeller University. Um, and they've used gene sequencing techniques to analyze more than a thousand soil samples taken from across the US. And they've discovered, oh, here's my pronunciation challenge. <laughs> Malacidins uh, in many of the samples, uh, and they had a he- had a hunch it was an important find. It says this is on the BBC website. Um, they tested the compounds on rats uh, that they'd given MRSA to, and it eliminated the infection in skin wounds. So, wow, not a pleasant experiment, but it, quite a convincing one. These MRSA are these superbugs that you tend to have outbreaks in hospitals because they're they're immune to, mm. to most of the existing antibiotics and currently the only way of dealing with them is by just giving a cocktail of antibiotics in the hope that they can't mutate to uh, survive all of them at the same time Um, so they're now looking to improve its effectiveness and you know isolate it and and, and make it as best as possible but you know it's hurrah there's a new source of antibiotics (laughs) hopefully yeah that's solve because that has been the big problem and people looking at viruses and things like that to try and solve these problems and as you say yeah with mrsa i know someone who had it recently oh gosh and yeah as you say they just kept having to give him different types of antibiotics and hoping one would work finally and it did thank god but it was scary and now you're looking back you're thinking well it all worked out for the best but at the time it was you know it gets crazy so so hopefully yeah we'll see 
see this coming through. The, the first antibiotic develops is actually, I remember learning this in biology and didn't know what it was, was actually discovered on a cantaloupe. <laughs> and I did not know that a cantaloupe was a melon. <laughs> and I've only recently found out it is. Surely so there, the must have been, there must have been people selling them on barrows down the east end that you would have seen. Well, we, well I used to call... Oh, anyway, we won't go down there. I seem to have a different language for everything. I call, I call things eggplants, which in the US people will understand, but yeah. I didn't know that that was an aubergine in the UK. I thought it was something completely different. So anyway, uh, yeah, I didn't know what a, what a cantaloupe was until about... A month ago, what a, what a and it suddenly all made you. sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, what would you like to talk about? Well, there's the the, the interesting got. I was about to say the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, or is, but it's a curious incident of the um, the walking fish, and they've oh, found, right. I believe, a ful- ful- falafel. A fossil. Oh, <laughs> you can see I haven't had lunch. <laughs> um, of uh, the they found a, a, I believe, a fossil of a fish with wrist bones. Ah. Now, why this is kind of more more interesting is actually it's not just that the, the, the fish had wrist bones. Is what the scientists behind this are saying is that actually it knew how to use them for walking on all fours, and um, it, it, it's kind of looking back and they've they found almost like the neural pathway of how these fish when they first transferred to land how they actually were able to and it looks like that it's kind of corrupted a neural pathway that was already there and um, weirdly skate fish use a similar method to walking or actually it was a basic version of kind of moving their hind fins like legs right. left and right and it's kind of a precursor to walking so it, amazingly these early fish that came out to sea we make it sound very easy oh they just came out to sea <laughs> one day but obviously it was a process taking millions of years corrupted this methodology or this you know that was already there in the brain and actually turned that into walking i just find that fascinating because until you told you don't actually even think about that and then all of a sudden you, you think to yourself yeah how did we just know I say we, but how you know our ancient ancestor to do that? And it's amazing how plastic the brain is, how it can take one part and just alter it, and you know develop on from that. And it, you know, I find it amazing. Some of my friends always laugh at me to say that you know, it seems so logical, but that we evolved from fish. You know, further down the line, we would have you know, we share some commonality with all these different mm. animals. For me, I you know, it just blows my mind. Yeah, apparently, apparently hiccuping is a reflex that we've inherited from fish. It's the way they would inflate their their swim bladders. Really? <laughs> so yeah, that, that hiccuping reflex is something that come between us and fish. Well, apparently, the other thing was I found from oh, there was a great program uh, called Inside Nature's Giants. It's on YouTube, but I didn't oh, realise yeah. this. Uh, there's a really interesting one that actually we've got a nerve running from our brain that goes to our vocal cords or goes to our throat. And it weirdly goes all the way down, round our heart and back up to our neck. Mm. Now, obviously, from the shortest point of view, it should just go, you know, take, be a few inches. And it isn't. It's really long. And actually cut a giraffe open, a poor giraffe that died at London Zoo, to, to show this nerve. And it goes all the way, and it is far longer. But actually, on a fish, that's the, the shortest route mm. from the brain to the mouth. But obviously, as we changed... And you could just see they did this wonderful model of, you know, as things became upright and the heart would have moved and everything. And this nerve kept its, it was trapped, it was kind of snagged around the heart. 
that I just thought it was wonderful. If it's on there, I think it's about it's a it's a autopsy. If you find it on YouTube, autopsy of a giraffe. It's called Inside Nature's Giants. But I believe it was Richard Dawkins, and he was talking about it, and uh, I, that just blew my mind. And it's just all this, you know, this commonality going back, seeing how we've evolved, is just fascinating to me. Yeah, no, well, so, it's, it's, it's it's left me speechless. Uh, that, that's something that uh, that uh, <laughs> when my first daughter was born, that nerve was slightly damaged, and so it can lead to a uh, a, uh, a a change in pupil size. Um, and so they had to do lots of tests on her to make sure that uh, you know it was it was that that was causing it. So yeah, it's wow, something that I know a lot about. Yeah, so gosh, and I hadn't thought in a giraffe it'd have to be another forty. I know because they, they showed it, and it was amazing because they managed teased it out mm. and yeah it was just fascinating because they're saying they were just saying look at obviously down the neck you've got this enormous nerve whereas it should have been yeah and a giraffe is exaggerated beyond all belief yeah. it, it, I just thought it was fascinating and they found the fish you know you can look back to see fish and the same thing unbelievable well yeah it certainly is a, an argument in favour of evolution when you can see something that's as ridiculously redundant <laughs> as that and you can trace back its uh, trace back its origin keeping keeping uh, fish in uh, the, uh, the the main thrust of the conversation though a story that caught my eye was that the uh, the amazon molly uh, they found out that this is a fish um, which reproduces asexually so it, the, the fish just lay eggs and they hatch there's no cross fertilization required wow. and this has been going on for thousands of years and and this flies against any argument for successful um species um survival because the argument is that you want to have a a diverse gene pool so that if something comes along such as a a bug or whatever then then different Mm. parts of the population will be um, more or less resilient to it and so that so that as a species the animal will survive but the molly's been continuing to do this for, for thousands of years and uh, appears perfectly fine by it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a very efficient form of, of creating new life. Uh, you're not having to waste any genetic material mm. on, on creating um, males and, and, and you know, all your offspring can go on to have children because they're, they're all the same as the mother. Yeah. But the, it, it, the, the genetic variability is normally the thing that you want in a, in a species and uh, these clearly don't have it. So the real intrigue is how on earth is this, this uh, species surviving? And um, it seems to be um, that they don't uh, accumulate the sort of genetic mutations at the rate that uh, had previously been thought. So there's... It's just, wow. It's just, <laughs> well, as we have said before, neither of us are biologists. So, uh, exactly how the the process of this this, uh, occurs but it's really interesting that um, that uh, there is there is doesn't appear to be any detrimental effect to this particular fish because uh, of the way it uh, goes about its business and so they're all effectively clones all these fish yeah Yeah. wow (laughs) so they they reckon uh, I'm again looking on the BBC website um, that um this is Professor Manfred uh, Schartl, who's based at the University of Hertzberg. Um, he's, his quote is, The theoretical predictions were that an asexual species would undergo genomic decay and accumulate many bad mutations, and being clonal, 
would not be able to rely on high genetic diversity to react to new parasites or other changes in the environment. There were theoretical predictions that an asexual organism would demise after around 20,000 generations. But not your Amazon Molly going strong. Wow, wow. Yeah, so very interesting uh, to, so, to know uh, uh, the research then will have to go on to see why that is the case. Because yeah. as I say, that goes against, well, as my GCSE in biology. Which I got a dean, I should point out. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my knowledge is, is limited, but yeah, that just, wow, that just blows me away. Yeah, well, anyway, that's the only other fish-related story I've got. How are you going to link from that? Well, um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> we have got the quantum computer <coughs> taking, uh, I think if we, uh, yeah, there's the quantum computer that's getting yet more closer, but I suspect it's still 10, 10 years away, as it has been for a while, and I, I think it will remain so. But I think they've found a way of using silicon yeah. in the chips, which I believe is, uh, obviously that's used in mainly, in, in, you know, in all our kind of processing power at the moment. Right. And so they they won't have to use, hopefully, kind of strange exotic metals to make these chips. I mean, the, the, the process, the, the real problem you've got is that at the moment you need just to capture an atom. They, they work a bit of processing power unit is just one kind of atom, believe it or not. And so the, the big problem is is actually trying to keep these things, keep an atom trapped yeah. in the state. So I think I think that the thing is actually building these are quite cheap. And I think uh, Intel have done a lot. But weirdly, the, the problem I've got, well, the big problem is, is actually people are now getting close enough to build a quantum computer. The problem is people don't know what to do with it. That is the massive problem because people don't know how to code one. Right, and and that's what has blown my mind is that actually when you first developed a computer, how did you speak to it? So we're going to have to actually go back in time to all the early computers and look how computing languages, how you actually spoke to the processing unit, developed. And so, how are you actually going to code in these computers that aren't really yes or no? They're kind of if buts and maybes. Probably. And so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's the key. I think no one knows how. To, so that that's going to be computer uh, computer programmers again. It's going to be a huge boom in years to come because you're going to have to work out how to code in a completely different way. Gosh. So stay in school, kids, and learn computer. Your IT class is important. I would argue. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I wanted to talk about was an intriguing story in uh, uh, again BBC website. It's where I go for all my news. Clearly. Um, that genes remain active after death. I did see this, yes. Dun, dun, dun. Can cells continue to function even after an individual dies? And this is a study published in Nature Communications. Um, so by analysing some post-mortem samples, an international team have shown that some genes become more active after death. Mm. Um, and so they're suggesting that this isn't a way of resurrecting people, but it could be used in forensic science to work out how long it has been since somebody died. Um, so genes are locked away in DNA um, and when these are switched on a telltale molecule called an RNA transcript is made mm -hmm. some of the RNA directly controls processes that go on in the cell but most of the RNA becomes blueprint for protein so it's these RNA transcripts that scientists often measure when they want to know what's going on in our cells um, <laughs> the quote I like is uh, blood is relatively easy to get 
but lopping off an arm or sticking a needle into a living person's heart or liver is no trivial undertaking. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway. I thought they'd go without saying, but apparently not. <laughs> Just comes back to the, the Monty Python liver donation sketch. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's amazing. Um, so if you've got uh, the ability of, of knowing what happens actually is what chemical reactions and what rate of these reactions are going on after death then uh, that it provides an additional tool to be able to date the time of death Dude. so that's wow. a fairly morbid uh, well, it's me that's bringing this out <laughs> at the end of the episode hey! thank god at last it's only taken 30 odd episodes finally <laughs> anyway fascinating stuff great speaking with you Simon you too Chris take care bye thanks you have been listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. With Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Tweet us at SL Science.